Thanks very much, Maddie. Uh, a very, uh, very good morning, afternoon, wherever you may uh, may be. Uh, as uh, as Maddie said, Ben Carnell, uh, head of client solutions from Centus, uh, and here today to talk about how to become a safety culture change agent. Um, this is a topic uh, in particular for myself that I am I'm quite passionate about. So I'll uh, I'll try and keep a, a little bit of a lid on the passion, uh, so that we do finish in time as uh, as well. Not only that, though, is that this topic is particularly relevant right now, um, given the current landscape. Uh, and I'm sure um, many of you have seen different commentary around and, and whatnot that with the changes we've gone through over the last couple of years, the um, obviously uh, yeah, the obvious, um, but likewise, some of those other changes is, uh, is, is there's now almost um, uh, never been a better time uh, in terms of initiating change and, and shaking things up, I guess, in terms of where you want to start to shift your organisation, um, particularly from a safety culture point of view as, uh, as well. Uh, in terms of, um, as, uh, as, as Matty has just introduced, um, yeah, so I, I oversee uh, all our, our client different, uh, our different client partnerships uh, alongside a, a wonderful team here at Centus. Um, for those that haven't heard of Centus before, um, we are a consulting company that works in the safety culture space uh, and looks at a range of different things that tie into our safety culture, namely leadership, culture, as the name suggests, uh, well-being and likewise uh, critical risk uh, as well. This is this is part of our or is our mission as an organisation, uh, and you'll see this narrative start to come through. Um, for those that haven't been exposed to centres previously, you'll start to see this narrative come through in in shifting the the language that sits around uh, safety, and that it's there to protect us for something rather than just there to protect us from something. So you'll see very much that narrative come through in in who we are as a business and how we partner with different organisations to help them shift their safety cultures and uh, and help their individuals and, and likewise their organisations uh, go home for the better every day. Uh, with respect to today's handout, um, you, you'll see uh, here a bit of a, um, a model that we'll refer to at different points uh, throughout uh, today's webinar. Likewise, what you've got uh, as part of that as well is what we call the uh, start, stop, continue. Um, so an opportunity to reflect on, okay, well, across those different areas, what do I need to start doing? What might be some things I need to stop doing? What, what are some things actually that, I, and this is important, that I'm doing really well that I might need to continue doing as, uh, as well? So to invite you, whether on that handout, whether wherever you want to capture those notes, just to capture a couple of things at least uh, under each of those titles uh, and, then, and then revisit it um, over the next few weeks as, uh, as well. I want to, um, just to kick us off, um, is share a, uh, a story about a company called um, Orsted. Um, now, Orsted uh, is an uh, sorry, a Danish energy giant, um, and they have gone through um, what has been one of the biggest transformations of any company, certainly over the last few uh, over the last few decades. Back in 2004, and, and some of you may have heard of the Orsted journey, back in 2004, um, as, as an energy company, about 90% um, of, their, of their energy production um, was based on fossil fuels, about 90%. So the rest of it starting to look into the renewable space. They went through um, a bit of a process where since 2004 and, and right through to the shift of about a couple of years ago, around back to 2019, where they've actually switched those percentages around. So they've gone from 2004 being 90% uh, fossil fuels, fossil fuels rather, to now being 90% renewables. For a company of that size and, and that nature of work, that is a huge transformation to, uh, to undertake. 
And naturally, as I'm sure you're starting to think through, okay, what would that look like for a company of that size, is you start to think through all the changes that they needed to communicate, not just internally, but likewise to, to different stakeholders that sit externally, to the public, to government, to whatnot, of that change to go from 90% fossil fuels through to 90% renewables in the space of around about 15 years. Um, they went on, on uh, and it was actually um, launched uh, quite publicly in terms of the journey that they were going to go on um, from, from, uh, from undertaking that change to really flip their business model around in terms of what that would look like. One of the fascinating things about this is the change that they went on um, wasn't straightforward. Um, it wasn't an easy process. It wasn't uh, without its roadblocks. It wasn't without its hurdles. It wasn't without its pushback. Um, at, at, a, at a point there, their, uh, their revenue was down by, by 40%. They'll pay, uh, they're actually facing a lot of backlash from the public. At one point there, they, they dropped right down to their lowest point in terms of you know, one of the most trusted organisations uh, over, uh, over in that space of Europe there. And so they were up against it time after time, particularly through the period of 2012 through to 2016. You even look at that internally, and, and whilst this may not be publicly known, the sort of pushback that a company, any company might get going from, this is our business model, this is the work we do, to actually flipping that round to, we're now actually going to operate in the renewable space. Um, they came under you know, intense financial and they had to divest a whole heap of, uh, of assets of theirs. Um, they went through quite a brand crisis uh, as well through that, but we're still able to come out on the other side now over the last few years to where they're now actually in terms of um, wind energy, um, they own about 30% of the market worldwide, which is about twice what their nearest competitor is. Very, very uh, well known worldwide for the transformation they've gone through from a company, again, fossil fuel driven, to now actually being one of the most trusted companies uh, in that particular space and actually viewed as, as one of the most sustainable companies uh, in the world. The fascinating thing about this transformation that they've undertaken is also the impact that it start to had, uh, had started to have outside of their organisation and more of the in the private market as well into this, this climate change journey that's now just not government driven, but it's actually being driven by a private company in this, uh, in this case, Orsted. One of the, um, one of the fascinating quotes um, from, uh, from their exec team um, comes from um, that their whole transformation was driven around this notion that business as usual is no longer going to cut it. And I thought that is a really, really good reflection, a really good quote for all of us, particularly over the last few years, that this, this notion of business as usual is just not going to cut it. What, um, what I'll invite you to reflect on as we, as we go through this journey and, and unpack this Orsted story is how they went about that change, how they went about that change through um, Harvard Business Review has actually uh, ranked them, uh, they did a, a bit of a say, story uh, a little while ago, an article has ranked them seventh uh, in terms of the biggest organisational transformations um, over the last period of time. So an incredible transformation. And I'll invite you to think as we go through uh, the content for today's webinar, what all those hurdles, what all those obstacles might have been that they might have been up against and how they might have applied some of the principles to get through that journey as well. I'll also throw out the invite now, very well worth a watch and we'll do it much better justice than what I talked to, is, uh, is put their name into YouTube. Uh, they've got a couple of videos there that talk through the change process. There's one there 
around the change process goes for about 18 minutes, very well worth a watch to understand some of those hurdles they come up against, which for many organisations, those sorts of hurdles would invite them or almost push them to just bunker down and just keep doing what they're doing. They instead continue to push, continue to challenge, continue to, uh, to, to look forward to where they're now are uh, 90% renewable uh, renewables and, and still wanting to improve beyond that as well, which is, uh, which is incredible. So let's unpack that uh, a little bit further. And uh, you'll see, you'll be able to see this model in, uh, in your handout. Um, but the first thing uh, Oster did is, is they were very deliberate around listening to the data. Very, a business of that size, of that sort of nature of work can be very easily to dismiss the data. And that, that goes for just about any organisation. But around about that 2004, early 2000s, you're starting to get different data sources come out, you know, Al Gore, those sorts of reports that were coming out in documentaries and, and starting to see where the world was going to actually head. Uh, and we know, the, we know the story around the uh, degrees of change there, but where the world was going to head over the subsequent few decades. Um, they did a really good job of going, the writing's on the wall for us. We're going to have to undertake not just a small, we'll just tweak or we'll just sort of change the way we do things just slightly. We're going to have to transform our business right almost a 180 uh, in terms of where they're headed. Um, they formed a very strong steering committee as, uh, as part of that to lead the change. And we'll talk to that in a little bit more detail uh, as we undertake this. The next thing they did is they created a very clear strategy. Uh, and if you, if you get a moment, I, I think they demonstrated quite well. If you jump on their website uh, and different articles around, you can see the strategy that they put in place in terms of here's our vision, here's where we want to be, here's how that cascades down into the values, into the sorts of operating rhythms that we had of, have as a, uh, as a business. The next thing that they did, which is quite important, is how they then went about implementing the change. And this is probably one of the key things that separates them from some other very well-known similar organisations and global businesses where their transformation process has actually come unstuck is that some of those other organisations have had incredible visions around where they want to head and, and what it looks like for them in sort of 10, 15 years time. Where it's come unstuck though, is when we get to implementing this plan. And that's a little bit of where we're going to uh, spend today's session as, uh, as well. Um, a, a quote uh, that comes from one of the articles that describes the change is, as with the, uh, the Austed transformation, while it's essential to have a clear vision and long-term strategy, it's important to give all stakeholders the time and space to accept the situation as it is, and then start to buy into and embed the vision. One of the things you'll notice as we go through today's topic is I would be confident saying that uh, I'm preaching a lot to the converted here, uh, is that a lot of us know the process through which change and what that needs to look like, but we're also all human and we want to get through that change process both individually and likewise with our teams, with our organisations as quickly as we possibly can. What I'll invite you to do as we go through different topics in today's webinars is to reflect where, where am I perhaps missing this? Or where am I spending too much time focusing on this? Or where's this roadblock likely to pop up along this change journey? And, and almost um, buy into that notion that sometimes change is a little bit around going slow to go fast so that we don't miss some of these crucial steps. So onto, uh, onto the agenda for today, and we'll, we'll reflect back on the Orsted journey at different points there as well. Um, is the first thing we're going to unpack is the brain and change. So how does change actually happen in the brain? What do those processes look like 
at an individual level, because that's also then crucial to then understanding how that happens at an organizational level. The next thing we're going to unpack is what does it look like to get stakeholder buy and what are some of those key steps that we need to uh, together in order to make sure that we've got buy in from the key stakeholders and aligned buy in as well. Then we're going to jump into looking at, okay, what does it look like to manage objections and roadblocks and what are some of the things that we might miss that can help facilitate those? But likewise, where might we see some roadblocks and how do we overcome those as well? And then lastly, we'll jump back into that roadmap for success and uh, unpack that in a little bit more detail. So the first topic I want to jump into is this notion of the, the brain and change. And uh, we're all, you know, very well accomplished professionals and we understand we've probably read lots of, uh, you know, articles or done some development in this notion of organisational change. And I dare say that's part of the reason that you're jumping into today's webinar as, uh, as well. What you'll hear a lot of commentary on is that, um, is that people hate change. Uh, and I'm sure we've heard that quote before in, in different variations. The reality of it is, is that people, uh, people don't hate change. We actually, I'd actually go so far as to say it's the other end of the spectrum is that we actually love change in most instances. What we don't like as humans though, is the process through which we get that change. Sometimes that process can be years, sometimes that process can be a few days, but we don't like the process to get to a particular change outcome. More often than not, there are, we'll be able to find some instances where that's not the case. But part of the reason why that's a case, the majority of the time is because the change requires consuming and the brain consuming a lot of energy. It has to, it has to expel a lot of energy in order to change however that, however long that or whatever change that might be, it requires the brain using more energy. One of the things we know about the brain is that the brain loves to conserve energy. So this notion of change then requiring us to use more energy for when we might already have a process or a, you know, a habit or whatever that might look like, the brain goes, well, hang on, I've already got a process or I've already got a way of doing ABC. Why would I use more energy to get just a slightly different or maybe even a bigger difference uh, in outcome as part of this process? I want to conserve the energy. And yeah, an, an example of, uh, of this, and I, I, a couple of years ago, I had to have uh, some, some shoulder surgery, which meant that uh, I couldn't use my right arm. And I had to uh, go about brushing my teeth with my left hand. I cannot describe the amount of uh, not just energy from you know, an arm point of view, yes, using my non-dominant hand, but the cognitive energy to think through how I'm actually going about brushing my teeth. The whole time, the whole time my brain is going, let's just find a way to use my dominant hand because I don't have to really think about that. It's habitual. Using my left hand though, is I had to use a lot of energy in order to buy into that change. The fascinating thing for that is that once I was able to use this shoulder again, straight back to using my dominant hand because my brain even then goes, hey, yes, we've sort of learned how to use the left hand here, but we can conserve even more energy switching back to the old way of doing things. I think we'll start to see some of that notion uh, come out as we go through today's topic. The other thing about change is that people don't change until the benefits of changing outweigh staying the same. So we can, you know, we can sell the message around change, we can push the benefits that are going to come through change, but until they outweigh the current state, only then will people start to entertain the idea of possibly changing either individually at a team or at an organisational level. 
when we are when we go through the process of change and, and, and talking through this, uh, this this notion of using more energy, what we're actually asking the brain to do is to create different or or more neural pathways. That's a little bit like walking through a field that hasn't been mowed or had a pathway before. That requires the brain to use a bit more energy to create that pathway, as opposed to using the pathway that has already existed, that's already there. So I want to jump into uh, into this model here, which is the stages of change model. And, and many of you would have seen this model before. It's been around for uh, many, many, many decades in, in the psychology space there. Now, it was actually first developed in the health psychology realm of understanding what are the processes that people go through when they're going to change some form of health behavior, whether that be getting fitter, giving up smoking, whatever that might be, these are the stages that an individual goes through from both an attitudinal, but likewise a behavioral perspective as, uh, as well. The, uh, the first stage is what we call pre-contemplation. And if an individual is at the pre-contemplation stage, it has not even crossed their mind that they might need to change, hasn't even crossed their mind. Uh, at the contemplation phase, as the uh, or, or stage rather, as the name suggests, this is where at an individual level and likewise a team level, is people start to go through, okay, what, what would an alternative look like? If, you know, is there another way of doing this? Could I do this differently? Have I always just been operating off habit? And maybe I haven't taken the time to think about how I just need to change things up a little bit. We start to weigh things up. At this stage, it's very much um, those comparisons tend to be sort of like for like. If we haven't chosen one over the other, we're just weighing it up to kind of go, okay, what would be the pros, what would be the cons, et cetera, et cetera. At the preparation stage, this is where we start to go through, okay, well, if I am to change, what are the things that I need to put in place in order to change? What do I need to, what do I need to remove? What do I need to put in place? What do I need to get more of? What do I need to do less of? What do I, what's that change actually going to look like? And what's that going to mean uh, for me on a day-to-day -day basis? At the action phase, this is where we then commit to the change. Okay, great. I understand what I need to do now. I'll buy into that change. The maintenance phase then, as the name suggests, is where that change is then maintained over a long time. An example of this uh, is let's say um, I need to, and my physio says, uh, I need to go to the gym more and I need to increase my, uh, my fitness. If I'm at pre-contemplation, that thought has not even crossed my mind. The physio might even say it to me and I don't even hear it. I just go, great, thanks for the appointment. See you next time. That hasn't even crossed my mind that I might need to increase my fitness and maybe even eat a little bit healthier, whatever that might look like. At the contemplation stage, this is where I start to go, oh, actually, maybe I, maybe I do need to operate uh, a little bit differently or maybe I do need to you know go to the gym or go for some walks or you know a little bit less uber eats throughout the week I start to weigh it up then I get to the preparation stage and at the preparation stage this is where I start to probably jump into more of that research phase is to look at okay well what are the things I would need to change on my day-to-day -day lifestyle and my day-to-day -day habits you know this might be okay I need to go and look at the gyms around my area and see which is going to be the best gym for me to go to I might need to go, hey, look, the runners that I've got are pretty old. I need to go and get some new runners. This might look like, hey, I probably need to, you know, change the, the structure of my day so I can get to the gym at this particular time or I've got time to do the meal prep, et cetera, et cetera. The action phase is then when I then put the runners on and I head down to the gym and then I come back and I cook a healthy meal. That's what action looks like. And I'm sure we've all gone through a similar process. Is that great for a week? 
two weeks, but then it's very easy to fall back into the old habit of doing things. That's where the maintenance phase kicks in is how do I make sure I'm motivated and energized to keep that change going? So how do we influence, uh, how do we influence change? Taking this back away from uh, my, uh, my shift to become a fitter human is now we actually start to look at, okay, what does this look like from a change perspective in an organizational setting? And what does this look like when uh, we're actually managing complex change of which I'm sure you all know, that's what safety culture is. Safety culture change is a complex change process. I'll draw your, uh, your attention to the, uh, the NOSTA model of, change, of complex change, which some of you may have seen uh, previously. And what, it, what this uh, model describes is all the different things that we need to have in place in order to enact successful change, whatever that might look like. This applies whether um, I'm, I'm the, uh, you know, the, the CEO of Orsted and we're gonna go from fossil fuel focus to now renewable focus. This the same principle applies if now we're not gonna do this process on a Monday morning, we're actually gonna do this process on a Tuesday afternoon. All of these principles apply in just the same way to varying degrees, of course. To move through uh, those stages of change, we need all six of these areas. What you'll find is that uh, where you're trying to enact organizational change, which is in a sense, moving a group of people through these stages here, is what you'll find is that a roadblock or a hurdle will pop up somewhere along this journey here. To move people through the contemplation stage, is what we first need is a vision and we need consensus on what that change is gonna look like. So what's the outcome from the change and what are we trying to achieve? And making sure that we've got consensus or buy-in around what that process is gonna look like. To move people through the preparation stage, this is about making sure that people have the skills, that they know what they need to do in order to, uh, to buy into and, and accept and then drive the change over a long time. The incentives is this is and, and often referred to as the WIFM factor is, is what's in it for me. So for those that are going to be buying into supporting driving the change and being part of that change, what's in it for them to jump on board with the change so making sure I've got incentives in place. The next thing is resources is making sure that people have the appropriate resources in order to be able to support that change, whatever that's going to look like. Those three things help an individual, likewise the team likewise the organization, move through that preparation stage of get the things they, they need in place in order to go, great, we can jump into action here. The action plan is then what gets us into action and then locks that in. The action plan is about understanding, okay, what's, what's it going to look like on almost a day-to-day -day basis for us to drive and make this change and then to operate with this change in place. If we're going to shift the safety culture from being driven you know, through, uh, through these sorts of attitudes here to now these being the founding attitudes that drive our, our safety culture, what does that action plan look like to get us from A through to point, uh, through to point B? The maintenance phase is, uh, is then about making sure those things continue to be in place and, uh, and are tweaked along the way to make sure that that change is sustained uh, over time. So I want to start uh, with that first uh, first stage here, and I'll, I'll jump back to that stages of change model. Is that typically when organisational change initiatives get introduced, and this might be we're going to shift the safety culture. This might be we're going to change our business model from focusing on. Well, I'll go back to the Orsted example from fossil fuels to renewables. Whatever that change process might be, 
is we have a tendency as humans to want to jump straight into action for two reasons. The first reason is that we want to get through the stages of change as quickly as possible, because moving through the stages of change does require a level of cognitive energy, both individually and then likewise collectively. The other reason we have a tendency to jump straight through to action is that for those leading the change, which will often be those here on this call, uh, for those leading the change, is for us, it makes sense in our head why we would need to change. We've had a safety culture that's, you know, that's got some unhelpful uh, attitudes, perhaps fueling the safety culture. We've been doing some things in a bit of, you know, a bit of an old school mentality. We need to shift that. We need to create, um, power, I'll use our terminology, what we would call a citizenship safety culture. Now, for us as individuals, we've gone through each of those stages of change. We can see why we would want to shift. We can see what it would take to get there. We can see what the good outcome is going to look like. And then we go straight to the organisation and go, hey, here's what it's going to look like. Let's start. The reason why that falls over is that we haven't taken people through those stages of change. We haven't allowed people on their own journey. I'm going back to the quote at the start of the webinar. That, that journey for people to actually understand, buy into, and then start to support that change. So the first step in, uh, in rolling out a safety culture change process or what initiative, project, whatever that looks, or journey is probably the more uh, suitable term. It's about making sure that we've got a clear picture and that all of the key stakeholders are aligned on what that picture is gonna look like. So, I want to uh, jump into, uh, into back into this model here and we'll, we'll jump back and forth between the two here. Without a vision is what you'll often find is that people feel, and we're going through a change process, if there's not a clear vision around what that change needs to look like and what from A through to B needs to look like or what the current safety culture is through to what the ideal safety culture is. If that is not a clear picture of what that journey and what that outcome is going to look like, is what you'll find is people are confused. People are not sure, okay, I know we need to improve, but I'm not sure what that's gonna look like. I'm not sure, you know, and again, it's an easy trap for us to fall into because we can go, well, it makes sense what it's gonna look like, but unless it's well articulated, it's hard for people to go, okay, I can see what that change is. I'm happy to jump on board and, and help drive that journey as, uh, as well. Without that vision, you'll see confusion start to pop up uh, for, a, uh, for a lot of people. And this is particularly worrying when you've got key stakeholders that you need to help drive this change as, uh, as well. Um, part of that vision, and this is where I've seen a lot of visions come undone, is it's not a, a well-articulated story around what we're trying to achieve and why we're trying to achieve that as, uh, as well. An example of that, let's say, is let's say I said to um, everyone on this call, you happen to be uh, in the office here. And let's say I said, um, look, we're actually going to change the way we're do doing things. I actually want everyone to meet in the city. Now, what I've given there, and I go with this example here, is I provided a bit of a picture of the outcome or a vision of, hey, I want us to meet in the city. And as part of that, I want everyone to use only one mode of transport, whatever that might be. Great, so we've sort of got a bit of a view, vision, but it's not really well articulated and everyone's going to sort of make their own journey there. And what you'll start to see is that people go, great, I'll call an Uber in order to get to that outcome or, you know, I'll take my own car or, you know, if I've got time, I'll take one of those scooters or I'll catch a bus, I'll walk in if I want to. You start to see people take different journeys in order to get there. The fascinating thing, though, about, um, about this, and, and I guess in this example, is that you'll see people 
make their way into the city, but you'll end up with people in, or I'll end up rather, with people in different locations within that city. You start to see people calling each other going, hey, whereabouts in the city are you? Where Do you know where we need to meet? And all of a sudden you've got people spaced out. The interesting thing though for me though, is that with that sort of example, is people will come up against roadblocks along that journey. It's things that get in their way from getting to the city. It's the car breaks down or I'm right on the outskirts of the city, but the traffic's got really busy or, you know, um, my Uber had to drop me off or whatever, or here's the only place I could find a park. And so you end up with this quite this scattered alignment towards that vision. Had I said to everyone though, I want, uh, I want us to head in the city, take your own transport in, you know, in, in your own time at some point today. And I want us to meet uh, in the, in the uh, shopping mall in, this, in the centre there, um, right in the middle, right next to uh, Hungry Jacks as an example. Now, I've been a bit more articulate in that vision and what good looks like. The key thing for me as part of this is that as people make their way into achieve that outcome, as different obstacles pop up, because the outcome is well articulated, people will actually themselves find ways to problem solve along that journey. Is what it looks like is great. Um, you know, my the scooter I was using to get in is now run out of power. Oh well, I'm all, I'm in the city, so I've technically I've ticked it. But no, if I need if I need to be here and by let's say that particular time is what I'll, what I'll do is I'll go, oh, I'll go and find another scooter to get in there, or you know, I'll catch a lift with someone along the way, is people actually start to problem solve because the vision is very well articulated. I'm, I'm providing that example because I see a lot of visions that are a very high level, and yes, they sound great, but they're not well articulated in terms of, this is the outcome that we're trying to achieve. And we wanna make sure that everyone's aligned on that as, uh, as well. The next thing in terms of getting stakeholders is to make sure there's consensus. Uh, and this is a fine balance, particularly for yourselves in leading this change, is between making sure that you don't get into direction by dictatorship, uh, for want of a better term. Likewise, making sure that you don't get into analysis paralysis. You wanna make sure that there's alignment and that people are on board with A, the need, and B, what the outcome's going to look like. Without that, particularly from your critical key stakeholders, not just the stakeholders that are easy to engage with, this is all of your critical key stakeholders and some of them may take longer to get to this consensus. Without that, as you'll see sabotage over the long-term, is it may not be that overt sabotage or that pushback, sometimes it will be, but over time as you'll start to see people just start to step back from what that change process looks like or not buy into or not support it or give it quite that tokenistic, yeah, I'll support it, but that's all, they're not gonna drive it. So without that consensus, you'll start to see that sabotage process as, uh, as well. So, uh, and yeah, as I said, uh, resisting the change there. So how do you get people from that pre-contemplation through to contemplation ready for preparation? Well, vision and making sure you've got consensus are the key things. The first thing you need to do is to make sure you understand your stakeholders. Now, this is important to do well before the change process is gonna kick in, is making sure that you've got time to know people's uh, functions of the business, their roles, and you understand a little bit what sort of impact a change might have on their part of business. Um, where I've seen uh, this come undone slightly sometimes is where people try and understand the stakeholders, but when the change has been 
uh, the change has already been announced or change has been initiated or the need to change has already been initiated. And because people haven't been understood prior to that process, you don't get the pushback, but you start to see people start to dig their heels in just a little bit. And it makes it just a little bit more difficult in order to drive that change. Know who your key stakeholders are in the change you're going to be initiating and start to understand what sort of impact it's going to have on them from the outset of what that's going to look like as, uh, as well. The next thing is the power of data, is making sure that you've captured data from a range of different sources. Uh, where this can come undone is, and this is the value of, of what we would call evidence-based practice, is not just grabbing a single data point or a single set of data points, is grabbing data from a range of different sources to help make the case for change. And that in itself, will then actually help get consensus for what the change needs to look like. You know, I, I know for, for myself, if um, at the moment I'm looking for an electrician. Now in looking for an electrician, I'm gonna look on some Google reviews. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna ask some people, you know, what are some good electricians that we use? Perhaps some, you know, community chats on social media and whatnot. I'm grabbing data, get some, I'm grabbing data from a few different sources so that I can make the best decision possible for the work I need to get done. The same applies for cultural change, is gathering data, and this might be safety culture diagnostic data. This is looking at some of the metrics and, and, and not just what the metrics say, but the story that the metrics are telling as well. This might be getting views or opinions from key parts of the business. It might be benchmarking externally, it's benchmarking internally, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's working with another organization that's doing things well. It's grabbing data from a few different sources to help make the case for change as strong as you possibly can. Uh, just grabbing a small piece of data um, or one piece of data is often, particularly if you're up against some pushback, is often not enough to make the case for change. So grabbing robust, comprehensive data that's going to help tell you the story you need to, to enact that change. The next one is around storytelling. You're setting a clear vision of where you are now, but likewise where you want to get to is you've got to appeal to the emotional brain. And that's around the story that sits uh, sits beyond that. So uh, for example, um, and uh, a, um, uh, looking at actually a director of a company recently, is he described the story of what they wanted to achieve as part of their safety culture, is didn't just go with that, we want to just create zero harm. Great, we, we all see the value in that and we can support that, but there's not much of a story to it. Instead, what he described is over his career, the instances where he has had to deliver quite sad and unfortunate news. The value in that, and, and um, quite unfortunate uh, stories he, he was sharing, but the value in that is creating a story around why that organisation wants to get to zero harm. And that story is what people are able to resonate with, particularly those, uh, those stakeholders at the early stages key. With these two things is what you start to get, and you'll all be familiar with, you know, your normal distribution of how people buy into the change, is you start to get those early adopters on board. Because these are the ones that are, you know, it's your 13 and a half percent, if you're familiar with the normal uh, distribution curve there, that are ready to jump on board. They just need to understand, or they're ready to change, they just need to understand what it's going to look like and all align to what that's going to look like as, uh, as well. Where uh, we see a lot of organisations come undone, uh, and perhaps some of you on this call might have come undone at this stage here, is they think that that's the key part to driving the change. 
once you've got a clear vision, once you've got people aligned or the key stakeholders aligned, great, that's the hard part of the change process. The hard part is actually then when you get to implementing that change. And this is where I wanna jump into moving from that preparation to the action phase that's necessary to get an organizational change process uh, going. I'm sure you would have seen quotes like this before. It's, uh, you know, the vision is all well and good, but what's my role in this? I don't see how my role is going to play a part in this is, you know, this is all well and good, but what if it doesn't work? Or so I can see what you're trying to achieve, but so it's going to sit with us to try and actually achieve this. Meanwhile, you've just created the fancy documents around what that change is going to look like, or how are we possibly going to find time to put this change in place? One of the things you'll note around some of these quotes here, and you'll have some in, in your own organisation as well, is that change as a process is often treated as a purely rational exercise. Uh, you can't put a, you know, a change process is not just solely a, you know, it's not a branding exercise or a marketing exercise just in and of itself. It's actually quite an emotive process for a lot of people to go through. So understanding, well, how do we, how do we see what are some of those emotions that are coming through from people? And then how do we actually make sure that we're providing what we need to help people work through those emotions to get onto that change process is really key. So what does it look like to move from the, uh, the contemplation through preparation into that action phase? Without the, uh, without the necessary skills for people to buy into and support that change is what you start to see is people having a level of anxiety around what that change is looking like. So my invitation here would be to actually almost reverse engineer that and to look at, okay, we'll make sure we've got the skills, but to also check back and see, okay, we're seeing people that are quite anxious around this change process. What that's probably alluding to is that we've missed a step here or we haven't comprehensively enough covered off on making sure that people have the skills to actually execute on that change and whatever that's going to look like. You know, if I, if, I, uh, if I ask someone who's never driven in the city of Sydney before to jump in the car and drive me from point A to point B, you're going to see some anxiety coming through because they don't yet feel they have the skills. Recognising that anxiety in an organisational change process is really key to go, great, let's push the brakes just a sec and let's step back and go, how do we make sure that these people or this individual has the necessary skills to actually execute and support on that change as, uh, as well. The next thing, uh, so, and as I, uh, as I touched on there, so if they don't have the uh, skills, you start to see some, some second guessing and that's where the anxiety kicks in as, uh, as well. The next uh, part is, is making sure that people have incentives. So if they're going to buy into, if they're going to support the change, if we're going to go on a journey from, uh, from what we would call a public compliance safety culture through to a citizenship safety culture, is what's actually in it for people to buy into and support that change. What we can often fall into the trap of is thinking, well, the benefits of that are obvious is that yes, people are more likely to go home safer at the end of the day and even in a better state to what they arrived at work, et cetera, et cetera. You know, zero harm, all of that sort of stuff. But what are we actually doing to appeal at the individual level in terms of what's most important to them around achieving this change? Not only that, but as they start to contribute to the change, contribute to the change, what, what's, what's, the, what's the recognition? What are the rewards? What are the incentives coming back for them to help keep them on that journey that they started uh, they started with and that they bought into at the start as, uh, as well. 
I've, I've never met an, any individual who has left an organization for feeling overvalued. So how do we actually make sure that as people buy into and support the change, that we're making sure they feel valued, that we're giving them incentives along the way. And that doesn't always have to be rewards. That can be recognition. It's, it's the feedback to them that lets them know that, yep, I'm contributing to this change and I'm making a difference as part of this change process. And I'm getting some recognition along that journey, not just once we get to the end there as, uh, there as well. One thing I will invite you to do is, and this is me reflecting on where some organizations have got it wrong, is that as you provide those incentives, make sure whatever those incentives look like, and there's different schools of thought around this, make sure that those incentives directly tie back to the vision that you're trying to achieve and what an individual or a team or, or a collective group have done to contribute to achieving that particular vision. So if the vision is to um, you know, be a, 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 an organization with a strong reporting culture, We'll make sure that we're not just going, hey, you know, here's your recognition or here's your reward, you know, for supporting that. Directly tie, here's the incentive because you raised a stuck in our reporting process that we've now been able to fix to make it easier for people to report. You're acknowledging what an individual has directly done in order to help the organization achieve that particular vision. The next, uh, the next one is resources. Um, sorry, just to go back a step there. Without those incentives is over time as you start to see that resistance kick in as, uh, as well. So if you're seeing resistance from people is the natural, the natural tendency to go back can be to go back and harp on around, hey, here's the vision, you know, this is what we're trying to achieve. If you're seeing resistance, it's probably because we're not providing enough incentive or clear enough incentives around what that change is going to bring. The next one is, uh, is around making sure that people have the resources. And this one has been particularly a topical one over the last couple of years for different organizations. Without the adequate resources and whatever those resources might be, is you'll start to see a lot of frustration and people starting to get really agitated or flustered around what that, that change process is meaning for them. And we've seen a lot in, in different organizations over the last couple of years of, of people being asked to do more with, with less. The result from that is you get that frustration that starts to simmer uh, across different individuals or across different teams. So making sure that people have adequate resources to actually buy in and support that change process as, uh, as well. This is one, and I reflect on a few different organizations here and the safety culture change process that they've got to. This is one that's often overlooked is what it's going to look like is as part of going from a, a counterproductive culture, safety culture through to what we might call a you know, private culture, uh, private compliance culture or mateship or citizenship is we're going to build the safety leadership capability. And what we're going to do as part of that is we're going to roll out a safety leadership program. And then to make sure that then it gets applied in the field, we're going to ask people to or invite people excuse me, to go through and undertake some infield coaching. And then as part of that, we're also going to invite them to um, apply this new process of how they conduct safety interactions. And likewise, we want to actually transform how we use pre-starts to contribute to that vision that we're trying to achieve. Going through that process for a lot of leaders, what we're actually asking them to do is to put something extra on their plate is now you've got to go to coaching once a week, or now you've got to actually spend some time differently preparing for a pre-start, or now you've actually got to take a few days out of your already busy schedule to go and attend this safety leadership training. 
when we're asking people to put something on their plate, we've also got to take something off that plate or look at how we can reconfigure the plates so that people feel they have the resources in this example time to be able to support that change as, uh, as well. Without that, you'll get a lot of frustration. And as that frustration builds, you start to see people uh, check out of that change as well. The next process there is around making sure that there's a clear action plan that supports the change. Now, that action plan, um, this is again where it can come undone for a lot of people because what you'll get here is a lot of people now, they've got, you know, there's a clear vision, they're aligned, there's consensus among key stakeholders and amongst the workforce. They've got the skills, there's clear incentives built in as part of that change. They've got the resources as well to support the change. But if it's not a well articulated, map or plan as to how we're actually going to roll out that change is what you'll start to see is that that treadmill effect where people are just running but not not actually um, getting anywhere as part of that and they feel like this change actually isn't landing anywhere we're not seeing the outcomes from it we feel like we're just going around in circles on the spot the action plan process is around making sure and um, reflecting on a few different organizations have gone through this process one, that it's well articulated. Two, that it's it's easy for people to understand how A goes to B to C, et cetera, et cetera. But likewise, so that that action plan is actually achievable. Because that action plan also needs to feed back to some of the other steps here in making sure that there's steps built in that action plan where it feels like, and certainly we are, creating momentum along that journey as well. That as part of that action plan, there's wins built in as part of that process that we're celebrating those wins. We're not just going, we're gonna execute that action plan and get to three years down the track and we'll see how we're going. Action plan is that critical step to get people to then jump into that action phase as, uh, as well. One of, the, um, one of the things I'll, uh, I'll invite you to think about is that often as these change processes unfold, is uh, a lot of organizations can tend to focus on the noisy, uh, for want of a better term, few individuals or teams that are way down the other end of that normal distribution of, of resisting the change quite heavily. You'll also see organizations at the same time nurturing those that are the early adopters. What's often forgotten though, is both the early and the late majority, which is usually the majority of the organization. The things that's uh, to come back to this model here, the things that will help the early and the late majority, so not the early adopters, the early majority and the late majority buy in and support that change are going to be the skills, incentives, resources and action plan. Those individuals that sit in those two categories, what they typically want to do is see people start to buy into and support the change before them. That's the purpose of or the value rather of those early adopters. But for those in the early or late majorities, they're generally willing to buy in and support the change as long as they see people achieving the change. So that's the vision, you consensus and your early adopters. But likewise, that they've got just those small tweaks or those just, oh, we just need to change that or we need this extra. Or if we had that, then yes, I can see how this will work. These are all the things that sit in the skills, your incentives, your resources and your action plan as well. It's those ones, those individuals, those teams in the middle that only need just the one or two, maybe a few more things than that to help them buy in support change. So making sure that we put focus on these things here, your skills, incentives, resources, and action plan is critical to getting that group on board. 
once you've got a good chunk of that group on board is you're starting to look towards 70, 80% of people on board. And what you'll actually start to see as an end result of that is that those that were resisting the change earlier on are now actually starting to go, gee, I better jump on board here because otherwise I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand out like a sore thumb as not being on board with this change. And now you actually start to see a bit more of that bottom up change being driven where people will go, gee, I better jump on board. Otherwise I'm, I'm gonna sit in sort of a small group here that are resisting the uh, change. What'll then happen is either they'll start to go, I'll jump on board or maybe this is not the place for me and they'll, they'll open themselves up for other opportunity as well. I just want to call at that point because I think the the, the early and the large uh, and the late majority are often a, a group that's forgotten about uh, in this change process, just in terms of it can be the early adopters and those that are, are late down the process of so the resistors that can create the most noise. But it's that big group in the middle that only just need a few things to go their way for them to jump on board with the change. So what does this look like for a roadmap for, for success? The first thing I'd invite you to do in terms of going through this process is to look at, well, what's the data telling us? What's the story that sits that around that data? And how do we turn that into a compelling vision that people can buy into? And you, you've heard the example before of Martin Luther King. It, that as a vision was so well articulated and, and people could see that vision that they're able to, to support and, and, and buy into that vision uh, as, as part of that long process as, uh, as well. And you know that that's quite a um, a, uh, a well referenced example. There's other examples as well where you know we want to create this sort of organisational culture, or we want to create this sort of change. Is it doesn't tell a story, it doesn't sell the why of what we're trying to achieve, and so it starts to fall over as well. The next one there is uh, is who are your key influences, uh, and who do you need to get on board. And what I invite you to think about as part of this process is not just look at who are my immediate key stakeholders, but to really take the time to reflect on who else in the organization do I need to have on board this process in order to drive that change. And this is where um, having run strategy workshops with different organizations is this is an example of that where you see organizations is they'll have executive representation. Excellent. You need that. Absolutely. Then you have perhaps safety team representation. Again, great then you'll have perhaps some operational leaders or you'll have other parts of the business and you might have, um, you know, your people and culture teams getting involved here as well, or, um, you know, your organizational transformation teams or whatever that look like getting involved, but then having also representation from, uh, from the field or from the front line around operational um, or on the floor representation as part of that as well is also really key to help make sure that we're getting the key stakeholders right across the board that are actually supporting and, and can be aligned on that change as well. The next one is creating a strategy. So how will we go about executing that strategy? What, is it, what does the strategy look like to achieve that particular vision? If we wanna to get to safety, uh, to, um, uh, to citizenship, uh, and, and that is our safety culture, what is the strategy around that and how does, how does that support that particular vision as, uh, as well? Likewise, how do we track success? What's the scoreboard that we're gonna to use to make sure that we're continuing along that journey? Not just go, great, we understand where we are now. We wanna be at citizenship in four years. How do we make sure that we're on the right path along that journey as well? The next one there is around implementing uh, that, that plan. So making sure that we've got the skills, we've got the resources, uh, that we've got the incentives in place, that we take the time to make sure that those things are set up properly 
before then going, great, let's launch the change rather than just going, we've got the data, we've got people aligned, we've got a strategy, bang, here's the strategy. You get the pushback because people don't understand yet or you haven't articulated well enough the steps involved to execute on that strategy. The last one there is how do we make sure that we keep our finger on the pulse? And I referenced this a little bit uh, earlier on because part of mapping this out is also about looking at how we build that into step three and to step four as, uh, as well. So what's the scoreboard that we're going to use to reference that people can actually then see momentum along that change journey as well. Uh, you can see this come undone sometimes where people go, you know, great, um, this is a sort of culture that we want to create from going from here through to here. But there's nothing really to demonstrate that momentum and people will often harbour um, quite negative frames around what has been. You've got to create that momentum, those wins, demonstrate those wins to, de to show to people that, hey, we are creating momentum along this journey as well. That's particularly critical for your, uh, for your early majority and your late majority as, uh, as well as they need to see the rubber starting to hit the road and before they start to jump into the change as well. Again, capitalise on your, uh, your early adopters there. Um, the last part there uh, is, uh, as well is, is also looking at not just, um, not just what it looks like for the safety team, but also thinking what's this going to look like operationally. So it's not just seen as a safety initiative or a change process, but what are the impacts going to be beyond just the safety culture as, uh, as well. An example of what this looks like, and I'm mindful of time, so I'll flick through this rather succinctly. Um, this is in uh, our Driving a Positive Safety Culture report that is online. Uh, yeah, if you jump on our website, you will see that. But one of our mining um, client that we work with is they went through a process of that first stage of understanding their safety culture, not just a, you know, a, a quick sort of, you get a little few data points, is understand what's driving, what's happening beneath the surface of not just what's happening, but why is it happening as well. They then went through a process of creating a steering committee that was gonna drive the process, not just at the start, but over the multiple year project as part of that as well. Uh, to then spend some time as a senior leadership team mapping out, well, what does good actually look like? How will we know when we get to what good looks like? And it's not just a vision statement on a poster, but what does that actually look like uh, for a frontline level as, uh, as well? They then rolled out some targeted training programs. And that again was about giving people the skills, building in incentive plans and giving them the skills for leaders to uh, provide incentives as, uh, as well as part of that uh, step four. And step five is looking at, well, what does it look like to embed that, to integrate that so that this change initiative is now not something separate, but it's now just the way we do things uh, and the way we are, the, the safety culture that is just now here at site. Uh, the impact of that 45% uh, reduction uh, in LTIs over two years, uh, their reporting culture completely shifted as, uh, as well. Likewise did their safety culture, uh, safety leadership capability, but likewise their safety culture is, uh, as well. The last point I wanted to get to, and this is particularly important, and um, uh, when we partner with organisations, and, and uh, likewise, if, if you do reach out as, uh, as well, it's a conversation we'll have at the start to understand, well, yes, it's one thing to go through the safety culture change process, and here's going to be the benefits, et cetera, et cetera, and you know, the benefits are, uh, are plenty, but looking at how do we make sure that this is sustained over the long term? that the energy is still there, that people are continually motivated, that there's that, that engagement over the long-term as, uh, as part of that as, uh, as well. And often that requires tweaking and just changing things as part of that as well. The other part we'll invite is looking at how do you integrate that change process into just business as usual and what that looks like as, uh, as well. 
Um, I'm mindful of, uh, of time and, and I'm sure there's, uh, there's some questions that uh, have come through, but I will just um, call out just a couple of, um, I guess, invitations here, uh, is that what we'll invite any organisation doing is, uh, is before they begin a safety culture, safety culture change process, rather than throwing a blanket over everything, is look at what's happening beneath the surface and what are the dials that we can turn up or we can turn down that are going to have the most impact on the safety culture. Rather than trying to change everything, uh, is look at what are the levers that we can pull and pull that are going to have the most impact on the safety culture, and and how do we best go about shifting those levers as uh, as well? The uh, the next uh, invitation I'll throw out to people as well um, is also what we call our safety essentials, and this is looking at now in the sort of world that we live in, where the notion of face-to-face -face programs and uh, and whatnot is not always now possible. Is how do you actually drive cultural change where people can't necessarily come together? You've got a geographically dispersed workforce, and our safety essentials offering is actually about targeting that specifically is looking at, well, how do you enact safety culture change? We've got people perhaps all over the world, all over the country, wherever it might be, and still get the same outcomes that you would get from a face-to-face -face, uh, program as, uh, as well. Uh, what I'll uh, throw to now um, is, uh, is a bit of Q&A, uh, if there are any questions, Maddie. Ah, uh, yes, thank you for that. Thanks so much, Ben, that was great. Um, I will just reiterate that a recording and a podcast will be sent out on Monday. We did have a question earlier about whether the slides will be available, which Cassie has confirmed that we can get a PDF version out to you as well. So we will send that out on Monday too. Um, so while we wait for any questions to come through, please pop them into the chat or the Q&A panel and I'll throw them out to Ben. Um, just while we wait, yeah, the part that really stuck out to me in particular um, is when people are comfortable, they won't want to change um, unless the benefits of changing far outweighs that comfort, um, particularly your story about having broken your right shoulder. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm naturally <laughs> left-handed. <laughs> so I have that mental cognition all the time trying to use right-handed tools, <laughs> just part of everyday life. Um, perfect. Okay. So we have not had any questions come through. Oh, yep. Here we go. We've got one from Claire. Uh, you mentioned getting emotional buy-in coming from a support service area of the business. We already communicate frequently with staff. How do we differentiate those comms and their importance from other internal communications? A very, very good question. Um, I've seen this pop up a little bit um, uh, of recent where there's comms after comms after comms after comms. There's a lot of value in understanding what comms people want to receive and how they want to receive those comms as well is where I've seen a lot of organisations do it is just try lots of different ways to communicate, you know, different messages. And what ends up happening is that everything becomes important and the result from that is that then nothing's important. Um, what I invite you to do, and this is part of engaging with key stakeholders, is to look at what are some different ways that you can communicate that particular message um, that you might not have before. Uh, and that might be engaging with, you know, with frontline workers, as an example, say, hey, what sorts of, you know, mediums of communicating a message really resonate with you and your colleagues? Or what do you need to see differently in terms of how we communicate different messages? 
doing that, I, I think you'd be surprised at some of the responses you get as part of that as, uh, as well, that we've always just communicated through these means and obviously digital particularly uh, a lot at the moment. Um, so, you know, understanding, you know, what are some different ways that you'd want to receive that message uh, and see, see what you get and then, then try it and then tweak and, and whatnot from now. So hopefully that answers your question somewhat clear. Thank you. We have another one, uh, another one from Marina. Uh, so milestones, milestones along the way. Did you have any to share with the participants who are undergoing the change to help them see progress? Um, was that rewarding? Yeah. Um, where we've seen that lands the best is where, so a, let's say, for example, um, you're going to roll out a safety leadership program is you start to see particular individuals in programs and the different levels of leadership really buy and drive the change is getting them involved very, very early. And, and you've got to pick the people because not everyone likes this, but almost sort of highlighting, you know, here, here we've got Brian and Brian's, you know, done this with his team and he's been able to achieve this as a result. The other thing as well, though, is uh, is from a senior leadership point of view is making sure that they're really I, I, I'm yet to see a senior leader overdo it and I think you know what I mean by that in terms of really demonstrating the change that hey I went through this program and here's how I'm applying those tools and what that looks like for us in our, our roles on a day-to-day -day basis rather than just being you know some contents as part of that as a as a, as well um, so for a senior leadership team particularly early on is not just communicating that change in terms of, hey, here's what we want people to do, be the change uh, and look for opportunities to build that demonstration in of what that looks like as well. Perfect. And we have uh, one last question from Ray. Um, and they say, I find the greatest challenge to safety change is managers who are KPI motivated. I guess they're asking if you have any advice for that. Yep. Um, Again, another common thing that pops up um, for those that are KPI motivated is looking at how you can link the safety code. And I know this can be easier said than done sometimes is looking how you can link the journey you're about to embark on with um, the KPIs and the impact on their KPIs that it's going to have. And that can be understanding um, in depth sometimes, you know, things that contribute to their KPIs and looking at how you can tell a story around what that change process is going to look like and how it's going to impact upon their KPIs as, uh, as well. Now, if that's not as a direct link, is actually linking in with them to see, hey, as part of this change process we're going to embark on, um, help me better understand your KPIs and how we can actually build that into what we're trying to achieve as part of this process as, uh, as well. Oh, sorry, I just had one more question. I was just going <laughs> um, to add Last question before we end this um, webinar today. I uh, have a question from Neil. He says, Ben, do you find that organizational change, change WRTHSE requires any specific focuses or targets that is different to other organization change? Example, HR, new payroll package, moving to GPS in a survey, etc. Yep. Um, for this one, I think the challenge for a lot of safety professionals um, is the impact um, on key business metrics. So, um, you know, financial metrics, as an example, is often something that safety leaders don't like to tip into because they don't like to associate that with safety change. Um, if you're looking to drive safety culture change right across an organisation or certainly, a, you know, a, a large part of the organisation is 
make sure um, my invitation would be to tip into that is to look at how can I tell the story of this change process and the impact that that's going to have on the things that are most important to the executive and are most important often in many instances to the board. Um, so where we've got, um, you know, perhaps might be you know, outcomes around, you know, we're going to see people, um, you know, more motivated to do X, Y, Z. Yes, that's important, but the board are going to have a completely, or not completely different, but they're going to have a different sort of uh, focus area to what safety professionals might have in how they reference some of those metrics as well. So understanding what some of their metrics are or what some of their focus areas are and how you can attach um, the impact it's going to have from a safety point of view to what those metrics are going to be as, uh, as well. Perfect. Well, I'm going to cut the questions up there just because I'm wary of everybody's time. But thank you so much uh, for your presentation today, Ben. If anybody in the chat hasn't had their question answered, um, again, we're sending out a video uh, podcast on the PDF slides uh, out on Monday. But if you would love to get your questions answered or reach out, please reach out to Ben. His email and LinkedIn is on the screen right now. Um, and he and the center's team will be able to help you out. But again, thank you so much for joining us today um, and enjoy the rest of your Thursday. See ya. Thanks very much, everyone.